there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when an argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome to a very special episode of Strict Scrutiny, a podcast that is so fierce it is fatal in fact. So as that noise might have made clear, it's not just the four of us sitting around in a studio or recording remotely like we usually do. This is a special episode because it is our very first ever live show. And we chose to do the very first ever live show at the greatest law school in the United States and the world. That law school, of course, which I don't even need to explain, is the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, so on today's episode, we are going to cover some breaking news and also get around to recapping two and a half or so of the January cases that have been argued thus far, and then we will cover some court culture. So let's get it started. Since this is a live show and people have never really seen us in the flesh, let's introduce ourselves. We actually haven't even seen some of each other of us in the flesh. So there's that. So hi, Jamie. It's so nice to meet you in person. You for the too. First. Actually, I have met um, all of you for the first time in person. I don't even know how that's possible that uh, we didn't meet before. But I'm Jamie Santos. Really excited to be here. I'm Leah Littman. Also very excited to be here. Melissa Murray. <laughs> Melissa Murray. Very happy to be here. And Kate Shaw. So am I. So some breaking news from the Supreme Court. Just last week, we got what can only be described as the SCOTUS version of hot tub time machine in the form of a 1993 memo from Justice Anthony Kennedy to Justices Antonin Scalia and Byron White. Here's what the memo says. Dear Byron and Nino, in my lower level office at home, I have a fax machine. The thing Notice that fax is in all caps. <laughs> Andy has a lower level office, so work is being done at every level of the Kennedy home, so that's great. You can use it to send and receive a fax anytime you like. Mary and I would be pleased to have you use it. In fact, I encourage you to do so so that you can see if you want one of your own. Yours, Anthony M. Kennedy. So, okay, wow. <laughs> this, this memo is peak 1993. But it's also just peak Justice Kennedy. Um, I don't want to destroy any court confidences. I will just say he remained enamored with that fax machine <laughs> for a really long time. Well, and, and others did too, I should say. So last year, um, my former boss, Justice Stevens, we lost last year, uh, in 2018, wrote an op-ed that you know created a little bit of controversy arguing for a repeal of the Second Amendment. Some of you might remember it. So Adam Liptak at the Times recently told a story, which is that the way Justice Stevens submitted his draft op-ed was via fax. And so uh, there was a buzz in the corner of the New York Times office and everyone was like, what is making that noise? And they walked over to it and it was a fax machine that no one remembered was there and a draft op-ed emerged from it and eventually made its way to the pages of the New York Times. So they all loved fax machines. What I love about this story is I'm just kind of imagining the situation where you have Justice Kennedy, you know, peeking over the shoulder of the installation guy because I'm sure he didn't do it himself. And then I could just see him saying, Mary, Mary, you got to check this out. This thing is so cool. And, you know, Mary kind of rolls her eyes and says, yeah, it's super cool, Tony. Why don't you, you know, invite Nino over? Oh, that is a great idea. <laughs> like he grabs his official stationery and goes over to his typewriter and 
You've really thought about this a lot, haven't you, Jamie? Okay. <laughs> there was a response. So this was found in Justice Scalia's um, papers. And so the response, which Justice Scalia has penned on top of the memo, is, Dear Tony, thanks for the offer. We should keep it in mind. <laughs> which is kind of, I think, Tony Pull your Kennedy, jets. you have no chill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that was the um, OK Boomer uh, part of this episode. I should note that just recently in this week's oral argument in Babb versus Wilkie, the Chief Justice, um, it was a case about Age Discrimination and Employment Act, and the Chief Justice asked a question whether the use of the phrase, okay, boomer, by a younger co-worker to an older, over 40, co-worker. Over, over 40 is? Let's, okay, so sidebar. The Age Discrimination and Employment Act is shady, 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 because it says that anyone over the age of 40 is considered an older worker for purposes of the statute, and I resist that. <laughs> it might even be 40 and older. I actually, th I mean, I care about this a lot because I'm 40, so I'm either, I either am or I'm not, depending on whether it's 40 and over or over 40. So, so the, either way, too the, close the, for comfort. Justice's question, do we think that signals he's on Twitter? Like, because that kind of became a meme on Twitter. So I think his is kids his are on Twitter? He has kids in college. Do you think he asks his kids what's going on on Twitter or monitors their Twitter feed? Like how? Do you think they maybe send said them a okay fax. boomer to him? <laughs> He's like, send some a fax. What is okay boomer? <laughs> but it, it is worth noting that the chief justice has a birthday coming up. Right? He's going to turn 65 on January 27th, so OK Boomer um, might be something that's top of mind for him right now. <laughs> yeah, and he will apparently be celebrating that birthday in the other piece of news that we had to cover uh, by presiding over the impeachment trial. Happy so, birthday! Happy birthday, <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts! Um, he recently swore in the senators as jurors in the impeachment trial, and the court's public information office put out some information about how his role in the impeachment proceedings will work. Um, when he appeared at the swearing-in, he was not wearing robes with any stripes, so he has chosen... That is a missed opportunity. <laughs> and there was no special hat, the little French thing from Justice Breyer. He didn't borrow that. So many missed opportunities. No sartorial flair. Um, he will be attending Supreme Court arguments in the morning and the Senate trial in the afternoon. If he has to miss any arguments because of his role in the impeachment trial, Justice Thomas will preside. I feel like that might be a little weird if Justice Thomas were presiding at argument. Does he never speak? Partially that, and also in addition to not speaking, he sometimes naps during arguments. So it, like it, it, it might take away from some of his nap time too. Um, so. Yeah, I think it's would love that though because they'd keep uh, get to keep talking even if the red light goes on. So it'd be good. Uh, Did you guys notice though that the chief he didn't he there was no sartorial flair but he came with a little note like he had a little note card with him which I noticed because when the chief justice swore in Barack Obama in January of 2009 some of you you're probably all too young to remember this actually Obama you we all as some okay, of us boomer. older workers okay, um, remember this um, but. The Chief Justice famously slightly flubbed the presidential oath when he administered it to president-elect and then after the oath, President Obama. And for about 24 hours, there was actually real uncertainty about whether he was actually the president because the Constitution has the language of the presidential oath in it. So a little uncertainty, and then there was a private do-over the next day, uh, just to be sure he was really the president. Um, and part of the drama, and I think, in one of the books that I read was that he had thought about if he should bring notes. Exactly. And he was he like, no, notes. I could do this. No yeah, problem. Yeah. I won't screw this. So up. I noticed when he ascended the dais in the Senate, he had learned his lesson. He had his notes with him. Fool me twice. <laughs> uh, the chief will also be driven over from the court across the street to Congress in order to uh, oversee the impeachment trial. You can almost, if you were standing on the steps of the Supreme Court and you were pretty strong, you could, you could throw the chief to the Capitol building, <laughs> but he's going to drive over. Maybe RBG can do it after working out with her. <laughs> in her super strong. sweatshirt. So our next breaking news is that we got some opinions this week, um, and I'm just going to highlight one of them because it's a case that we covered that uh, Lee and I covered, uh, gender versus I or IBM versus gender, and this was an ERISA stock drop case, um, and the question in the case was about what the standard, you know, what kind of facts have to be pled to state a fiduciary breach claim after a stock drop. And when we talked about it, we said that um, Paul Clement, who was representing IBM, had changed his argument after cert was granted. So rather than focusing on whether the, the 
enough facts were in the complaint, he offered this argument that effectively would make it so that there's no such thing as an ERISA stock drop claim at all, that it's that you virtually can never um, uh, even assert one. And when Lee and I talked about, we, we said, you know, the justices did not like this. And there was a decent chance that it would just be what we call uh, uh, digged or um, it, it would result in a dig, a dismissal uh, because it was improvidently granted. And that's basically when the justices get buyer's remorse about a case or when it's really late in the term and they don't want to write more opinions. Uh, and so, a reason for a dig, just to be clear. But, and so that's basically what happened. So there was this uh, very short per curiam opinion that where the justices said, listen, the, the focus of your argument is on things that weren't argued before. And so we're going to vacate this, uh, the Second Circuit's order, uh, its opinion, and um, remand it so that if the Second Circuit wants to, to talk about this some more, then they can do so. But I think the court made pretty clear that the Second Circuit could also say, sorry, buddy, you waived your chance. And so I think it's really interesting. And I think I, I, I do kind of wonder from the client perspective whether this was this this idea was the client's idea or if it was Paul Clement's idea, and, and if it was Paul Clement's idea, I imagine the client would be not super pleased about the situation. So even though it's maybe not the outcome that um, they wanted, it is a little bit more favorable to them than an alternative outcome, which is just the straight up dig. Because here, at least, the court vacated the Second Circuit opinion and allowed the Second Circuit to consider these arguments. In a prior case, Visa versus Osborne, the court just issued an order saying the parties have chosen to present arguments that weren't presented at the cert stage, dismissed as improvidently granted, but the lower court opinion stays in place. And in that case, I believe uh, the advocate- it was Neil. Uh, Kotchel. Yes, was Neil Kotchel. So, so one might wonder why the court chose to give another shot to Paul Clement, but not um, to Neil Kotchel the first time. Who knows? Um, okay, so let's give a couple of updates from the most recent conference. Well, I should say, so we're recording this on Friday afternoon, the justices' conference cases on Fridays. So we have some news from last Friday's conference. Um, we don't yet know, at least this minute, um, any of the outcomes of today's conference. It's, of course, possible we'll learn a few things even while we're recording. Um, but uh, but because we haven't yet learned anything. From last week, we got three grants. Um, two of them are cases, were cases involving what are called CVSGs, calls for the views of the Solicitor General. Uh, occasionally, or actually relatively uh, regularly, the court will ask for the views of the SG's office about whether it should take a particular case. Uh, and so in two cases where the, the SG recommended grants, uh, the court indeed did go ahead and grant. Uh, one of those was an ERISA preemption case. One of them was a Railroad Retirement Board um, uh, benefit denial case. Um, and then it added a third case, which is a First Amendment challenge to a federal law that bars auto dials to cell phones. So, you know, not like the big blockbusters, but sort of, you know, three interesting additional grants. Um, there were, maybe more interestingly, a bunch of relists. Um, so that's those are cases that the justices have had listed for conference, and someone or some group of justices have decided, for reasons they don't tell us, that they're interested in taking another look or considering at a future date, um, potentially taking up those cases. So a relist doesn't necessarily mean the justices will ultimately grant cert, but it indicates a much higher degree of interest than your average cert petition is likely to get. And so there were a bunch of those last week. Um, to quote John Elwood, who writes uh, SCOTUS blog's Relist Watch, he said about last week's relist, this week's relist involved the most comically high-profile group of cases I think I've ever seen. If they actually granted in all these cases, everyone's heads would explode. And I think that's right. Um, I'm only going to flag a handful of them. Uh, there are two cases that Melissa and I talked about last week. Uh, both involve post-Masterpiece Cake Shop kind of equality and religious liberty potential clashes, a case called Arlene's Flowers and Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. And so both of those cases, if they take them separately or together, um, could present opportunities for the court to actually tackle head on the question that it largely sidestepped in Masterpiece Cake Shop. There's the potential return of the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate. There are actually a bunch of lower court cases um, that have issued rulings pointing in lots of different directions um, involving whether the contraceptive mandate and the accommodation process that it creates violate uh, RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, um, there are also cases in the other direction that the, that the accommodation process um, is so accommodating of religious objections that it is essentially inconsistent with the mandate under the statute or the statute's mandate that is then fleshed out in a regulation regarding the requirement that employers provide contraception. Um, so those cases could, some combination of them could come before the court. There's a constitutional challenge to a California 
nonprofit donor disclosure law. People who follow campaign finance um, are sort of bracing themselves for disclosure laws being potentially the next frontier in terms of the deregulation of the sort of legal framework around, uh, you know, trying to impose some controls around money in elections. This is maybe part of that. There's a faithless elector case out of Colorado. Um, so as folks probably know, um, it has happened a number of times in our history and twice in the last two decades where an individual has lost the popular vote but nevertheless ascended to the presidency because of an electoral college victory, right? Folks in this room know that. Um, and it is the case that um, there are lots of scenarios in the 2020 election and you know future elections where the defection of one or two electors from voting for the candidate that their state has supported could potentially turn an election. And so you've had a handful historically of electors who have tried to vote their conscience instead of just casting the vote for the winner of the popular vote in their state. And so there are a handful of lawsuits pending right now, including one out of Colorado in which an elector um, refused to cast a vote for the winner of the, for Hillary Clinton, the winner of the state's election. Um, and there's a Colorado law that required his removal and replacement with an elector who would vote consistent with the state's popular vote. Um, and he successfully argued in the lower courts that that law is unconstitutional, that actually by design, members of the electoral college should be able to vote their consciences as opposed to being required to vote for the popular vote getter in their state. And so these cases, you know, if the court decided to take them up, could potentially have huge ramifications in a very close election you know, later this year or at some future date. So there are actually more, but I'm going to stop because we have lots more to cover. So there's a lot more they could grant either for April, but more likely for next fall, uh, maybe as soon as today. Um, so another case that they are not conferencing today, meaning Friday, but are conferencing next week, um, but that still might make its way onto the court's docket this term is a case involving the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we could do an entire episode about this case, um, but it would just be me saying the word fuck over and over and over again, so <laughs> we won't do it. There um, goes our PG rating. <laughs> But uh, briefly, um, the state of Texas, along with some other states, filed a lawsuit arguing that Congress's amendments to the Affordable Care Act, specifically reducing the tax penalty you have to pay if you don't purchase health insurance to zero dollars, made the mandate unconstitutional. Um, and because of that, the rest of the Affordable Care Act is invalid as well. A district court in Texas said, yes, you're right. Um, it went up on appeal to the Fifth Circuit. The Department of Justice agreed with the district court. Um, ruling and the Fifth Circuit said, yes, we agree that the, quote, mandate is unconstitutional, but we decline to decide now whether the rest of the Affordable Care Act is invalid. Um, so several Democratic-led states and the House asked the Supreme Court to hear the case now um, and on an expedited basis. So we could know within the next week whether they will do so. Um, the case is what's known as in an interlocutory posture, as in not all of the proceedings have finished. The district court and court of appeals still need to redecide whether the rest of the Affordable Care Act is invalid. And while that usually counsels against review, uh, the House and the Democratic-led states are arguing, well, look, the court of appeals has already invalidated a provision of a federal statute. It did so on the absolutely ludicrous grounds that the Republican-led Congress strengthened the mandate rather than just reducing the tax penalty to zero. Um, in fact, on the day that the Solicitor General's office filed their papers opposing Supreme Court review, the president tweeted out that he had, quote, repealed and undone the individual mandate, nominally contradicting the position of his Solicitor General's office. Um, and so there's some possibility that the court could hear that case this term um, or in the near future. But we will wait to see. Fun times. All right. Should we uh, jump into arguments from uh, this sitting? Let's do it. Let's do it. So the first case is everyone's favorite, ERISA. Uh, no, this is actually a case about Ar Article Three standing. It just happens to take place in the ER ERISA context. The er ERISA is the cracker through which to eat the, uh, the standing cheese. Um, so th this is about pension plans. So uh, under ERISA, there are a couple different types of retirement plans. The ones that you probably are most familiar with are 401k plans. Um, but the ones that used to be quite common are pension plans. And the way pension plans work is that um, employees are basically guaranteed particular benefits. You know, you if you work for this long, you'll get $2,500 a month for the rest of your life. Uh, and and those uh, the, that money is paid out of a trust. Uh, and it's paid out of a trust no matter how the trust is doing. So whether it's, you know, going crazy and making tons of money or whether it's losing money, the, the beneficiaries get the same amount of money each month. 
Um, what, what that means is that the employer has the risk of loss. So if your investments aren't doing well, the employer has to basically make good on the promise by contributing more money into the trust. And then the benefits are also insured by a federal uh, corporation called the Pen uh, Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. So that's the background that's kind of necessary to understand the case. Um, very briefly, the facts of the case are that there were fiduciaries of U.S. Bank who invested the trust in this case in equity funds, which are basically kind of high-risk, high-reward funds. When the market's doing well, they make a ton of money. Um, when the market drops, they can lose a ton of money. And uh, the recession hit. The trust lost, lost $750 million, and it was underfunded, so there wasn't enough money to pay all of the benefits. So the participants sued, and they said, you're recklessly uh, investing our uh, retirement benefits, and you should be required to account for that. After that happened, the employer contributed a bunch of money back into the trust as they're required to do under the statute. And so the district court dismissed the case and said, there's no standing because there's no chance that these uh, employees aren't going to get their benefits. There's enough money now in the trust. Um, U.S. Bank has a ton of liquid assets. So even if your fiduciaries were doing crazy things, you're not actually harmed by it. So that's the, the, the general question is whether in this type of a context there is Article III standing when there is uh, alleged fiduciary misconduct, but the specific participants aren't individually harmed by it. So one interesting question that came up at oral argument was the nature of the injury to the plaintiffs. Um, the Chief Justice immediately wanted to know whether they were claiming a past or present injury versus a future one. Um, and that's relevant because if they're claiming some sort of future injury, then it seems like they might have to show some possibility that the plan won't be able to meet its obligations or is underfunded. Uh, whereas if they're claiming some sort of past or present injury, then it felt like their injury was more along the lines of we were denied some right of loyal stewardship or some duty of prudence by which like, you were supposed to act responsibly and didn't, even though it didn't cause us a monetary loss. Right. And the plaintiffs also had another theory. It was a, a property-based theory. And the theory basically goes like this. Congress, when it enacted ERISA, it gave employees a property interest in the trust so that when the trust is being improperly managed, um, it's like an invasion of property. So someone who comes to your house and starts walking on your front lawn, even if they don't step on your tulips, they've still invaded your property. And so even without showing that type of harm, you'd be able to sue under property law. And so the plaintiffs argued that the same thing would be true here. And the other thing they argued, which is a kind of practical point, is that any other rule would be crazy because plan beneficiaries are really the only people who can sue here. Um, they're the ones that have an interest in the, the plan being run properly. Um, and the only other option is that the fiduciaries themselves can sue, and they're not going to sue themselves. So if plan participants can't sue, no one can, and that can't be right. Um, so I love this case. I actually gave this question, the Thole question, two years ago to my Fed court students as an exam question. Um, and one of the reasons I like it is that it really tees up at least three different ways of thinking about standing doctrine and how you reconcile these different ways. So one is the role of history. Because the plaintiffs in this case point out, well, look at common law, uh, trust beneficiaries used to be able to sue even if there wasn't actually any loss to their trust or they weren't personally injured financially. Um, and so that history, and that common law tradition suggests that, you know, the plaintiff's equitable interest or trust-like interest here um, is sufficient for purposes of standing. And then another theory of standing is, well, look, Congress allowed them to sue, either because Congress thought um, when a plan um, uh, fiduciary breaches these obligations, there is a sufficient risk that the plan will be underfunded, or because Congress created this kind of intangible injury in, you know, the equitable interest or in this right of, like, loyal oversight of the plan. Um, but then the other theory is, well, no, there has to be an actually sufficient likelihood of something that the chief called tangible injury or real injury. And at various points, you saw the justices um, toggling back and forth between these different theories and asking how to resolve them. So the chief, to my mind, was really wedded to the last theory. Like, he just wanted to know, 
look, what's your tangible injury? I think that courts are totally capable of determining what's a sufficiently concrete, tangible, real-world injury that allows a plaintiff to sue. Justice Gorsuch, you know, the nominal originalist, was like, well, look, there's a lot of history here. I'll grant you that. But, you know, there's no actual likelihood that you're going to experience any financial loss. Justice Kavanaugh was asking kind of a similar variation on that question. And so you saw the different justices basically trying to reconcile like which theory of standing should matter and why. Yeah, and what, uh, the the kind of two justices that I think are really interesting to watch, um, uh, Justice, uh, the Chief Justice certainly, and and it, what was interesting to me about the Chief's theory here is he saw this as a an issue about the separation of powers and the role of the court. So he has, he had several um, colloquies with counsel for both parties where he kind of said, listen, Article 3, this limitation is the only thing essentially that allows us control, uh, allows us to kind of control what Congress does in some way. So otherwise, if we didn't have this limitation, Congress could basically kind of send everyone into court to uh, to kind of resolve abstract problems. And that's not what we're here and for. And I want to scream back at him, that's not the separation of powers, that's judicial supremacy. <laughs> These are different things. Yes, and so and Justice Kavanaugh had, a, like you said, he had a much more practical kind of approach to it. So he had this this statement where he was saying, "All right, so let's assume you're right. The defendant's theory was what you'd have to prove to get into court is that not only was the plan underfunded, but the the employer would be unwilling or unable to kind of make those contributions. Um, so if if they're kind of uh, in a liquid company or they're on the decline, um, you'd also have to show that the PBGC wouldn't insure it. And so Justice Kavanaugh said, that seems like an insane amount of work. That means before you even get to the merits of the complaint, you're having to have battling experts talk about how liquid the company is. And one thing he said was, is it worth the candle when instead we can just go for this historical approach? Now, I should say the defendants very uh, hotly disputed whether the common law approach actually was the common law approach. Um, and I think part of the problem when you get with these types of ERISA cases is that trust law is referred to as if it's this kind of consistent, everyone had, this, had the same idea. Trust law varied state by state. It varied different types of claims. Um, there were different types of requirements. And so it, it's hard, it, it's not necessarily true that trust law actually had a different rule. So, so that's going to be one issue in the case. But that's just, I, I think, a general critique one could make of an originalist or historicist position. More generally, it's presented as though there is some kind of coherent history or theory of say, the Constitution. But in fact, there might actually be a real contest over what original meaning was with different people having very different views. I mean, so the battle that you're seeing here in the statutory context about around the standing issue is just sort of a theme in the sort of broader battle between originalism and other forms of interpretation. Yeah, but I think it's different here because we are, this is statutory, we're, we're interpreting an actual statute. And so Congress created a statute with the backdrop of trust law, but they also made their own specific decisions. And I think it goes back to what you're saying, Leah, like how much are we going to allow what happened before the Constitution to kind of govern who we allow into court when the Constitution created this new requirement that didn't exist beforehand? So I, I hear all that. I think it's just a general critique of the originalist position. Like there are lots of holes. You yeah. poke in that. And you know, history is not necessarily coherent, although it is often presented as though it were. Yeah. And you might say that where history is messy and there is no clear answer, perhaps we should allow Congress to decide what constitutes a real injury, at least in the context of these statutory claims where Congress is creating the underlying right to begin with. Um, obviously, the court has suggested otherwise in Lujan, um, but it has really struggled to define exactly what limits there are on Congress's ability to create standing, um, and my at least personal view is better just to leave it to Congress. It was a really interesting argument. I'll be curious to see uh, what happens, and I think it's it's hard to predict. Uh, it, as in many ERISA cases, Justice Thomas could play a really key role, um, and he actually writes quite a few ERISA opinions, uh, and he doesn't say anything, so hard to know where everyone stands. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi, it's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Hulu has movies. 
We're here to tell you again, Hulu has movies that put you in the driver's seat like Ferrari, starring Adam Driver. Hulu has movies that'll terrify you, like the first Omen, plus the entire Omen franchise. Hulu has movies that'll inspire you, like Origin, directed by Ava DuVernay. Hulu has movies that'll make you hold on tight like Bullet Train with Brad Pitt. We've said it before, and we'll keep saying it. Hulu has movies. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. <laughs> All right, so I feel like you guys sold that extremely well. Um, bridge- <laughs> I'm saying, uh, I'm saying that <laughs> I, it, it it got there actually, <laughs> but I say I know. <laughs> um, I don't think we need to do much gilding the lily for Bridgegate. It kind of has all of the drama baked in. Um, so we're not. We spent a, a good lo- long while last week previewing this case, but it is just so rich. And, and just <laughs> so seedy that we have to do a little bit of recap from the argument. So for those of you who missed last week's episode, um, this is the case involving the 2013 realignment of the traffic lanes on the GW Bridge. That was a nice, <laughs> I like that. I like that. Forcing the voting rights. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it's just a reallocation. It's, you know, and actually there's all this like Is it shade a theft thrown or is it at, a realignment? Right. Yeah, exactly. No. So, but all the shade thrown in the briefs, at least not in the oral argument at the fact that like the fact that Fortley had the three lanes to begin with was somehow part of this early corrupt bargain, which may well be true. It is kind of weird that nine of, of, of the 12, only, you know, three come from this one little town in Jersey, but none of that is at all material to the dispute here. Um, anyway, so this is this is the Bridgegate case, and before we talk about the argument, um, I want to share a little bit of hot tea from a listener who sent us one of the best, uh, like, outside the courthouse dispatches that we've gotten. So let me share this with you and also encourage listeners to please keep this coming. We love hearing. Slide into our DMs. <laughs> we are ready. We are ready. Okay, so here's what this listener told us. I went to the Bridgegate oral arguments yesterday after listening to you guys preview it. I thought you might be interested to know that Bridget Kelly, so she's one of the defendants, her extended family, like 20 of them, paid people to hold places in the public line for them, rolled up swarming with Trump hotel umbrellas. Um, A clash of New Jerseyans ensued in which a diehard Bridgegate fan in the line called them out for cutting and for the Trump umbrellas. They fought back. (laughs) So much drama and disappointment. And the arguments hadn't even started yet. (laughs) I love this because I feel like they are bringing the Jersey Shore to the steps of one first. (laughs) Wait, we translate. Lie about the reasons you're realigning the... GTL. We we translate, sorry. Oh my gosh. Kate. And laundry. Sorry. <laughs> oh, wait, is this an okay boomer moment? Or do you know what we're talking no, about? I think I'm the boomer here. Yeah, you are. <laughs> I think so. Do you remember the situation, Snooki? Oh, I remember Chino, the situation. Polly. Um, Mike, the situation. Sorrentino, DJ, Polly D, Nicole, Snooki, Polizzo, Jenny, Wow, Farley, Sammy, the sweetest bitch you'll ever meet, sweetheart. Oh, yeah, I remember her. <laughs> Okay, Jamie and I did not prep for this part of the podcast. I mean, I'm just sitting here like, I can't even remember my kids' names that well. (laughs) And this show hasn't aired for like seven years? No, okay, there's been a family reunion. I mean, there's so much. I mean, I I just, thank you, New Jersey. Thank you for this. Thank you for the Real Housewives. Like, you've done so much for pop culture. And in, in some ways, like, at... 
a, a deep level, that is kind of the argument that Baroni and Kelly's lawyers are making, which is like politics is dirty. Jersey politics is especially dirty. And all of that has nothing to do with a federal criminal law, actually. So that's the argument that this lane realignment is above the law right, <laughs> or below it. I'm not even, you know, <laughs> um, but it's but 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 that's so 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 the one other piece of color that I will give you. So there's the outside the courtroom color from a listener. And then there was a dispatch from Mark Walsh, who's a reporter who covers the Supreme Court. So he wrote it up for SCOTUS blog. Um, and so Bridget Kelly is there and she's been sentenced, um, but she is out pending the resolution of this case. And so she's escorted into a seat near the front of the courtroom. And just before the arguments begin, uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who's at the center of all of this. Her former boss whom she implicated when she testified, so, and then he denied it. And he wasn't charged. He's never charged. He's never yeah. been charged. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so, but I gather there's bad blood there. You think? Um, I would guess, maybe a little, little bit. So she, so, so the Supreme Court security, evidently not realizing all of this backstory, seats Chris Christie and his wife directly in front of Bridget Kelly and her lawyer. So they are. <laughs> Um, or maybe they did know, and maybe they just they wanted did. to there, <laughs> stir the pot a little. Ever exactly. <laughs> this reminds me of all the great things of Jersey, obviously. Um, but one of my favorite Onion articles of all time, when we were just talking about maybe the Supreme Court, you know, marshals being in on the drama between Bridget Kelly and Chris Christie, um, is the spoof on a Jim Comey op-ed. Um, that the Onion ran, where it said Jim Comey colon I'm just a caddy bitch from New Jersey, and I live for the drama. This is when he was in the business of subtweeting and retweeting the president and saying all these mean things about him. Um, so, so anyway, uh, lots Has of he left that business episode. You know, I think he it's maybe gone a little dialed, bit. dialed back. Yeah, a bit. dialed back a bit. Right. Should we talk about the case? I mean, this is fun, but yeah, this no, is kind of the same. Yeah, okay, let's talk substance. Um, so, I think my my general impression um, was that my my thinking going in, which is that these defendants had a very real chance of prevailing before the Supreme Court, was confirmed by my reading of the transcript. I should say the oral arguments, the audio uh, was not up. I mean, it may be up by the time we're done with this podcast. Um, but from the transcript, they got a you know a fairly sympathetic hearing. And the Supreme Court has narrowed the reach both of the federal bribery statute and the honest services statute. Um, in recent years and just seems increasingly um, of the view. I mean, as I sat and read this, I thought maybe they just don't think that federal criminal law should ever be used in the context of either this political political actors or fiduciary, even, uh, you know, breaches by uh, private parties. I mean, they haven't said that. But in McDonald, a case we talked about a lot last week, um, you know, there's a few assigns. Well, maybe some of this shouldn't be permitted under Virginia law, right? That was the governor who had taken all of these gifts and loans and in exchange done some stuff, but not enough stuff to implicate, said the Supreme Court, the federal bribery statutes. Um, but the court said, oh, you know, maybe Virginia law should take care of this. And I sort of thought maybe that's what the Supreme Court seemed to think about. You know, these people suffered professional consequences. They uh, lost their jobs. Um, you know, maybe some there should be some state law consequences, but that federal criminal law is too blunt a tool uh, to address this kind of messy, interpersonal, mixed motive sort of political uh, misconduct. Um, and I just think that like the Supreme Court is wrong and that there are ways to draw principled lines that allow the most egregious kinds um, of violations of, um, you know, public office or misuse of public resources for private gain and allow those to be subject to the federal criminal laws um, without opening up this sort of universe of potential liability that might, you know, drive potential honest public servants out of the business, which is sort of the parade of horribles that um, Kelly and Baroni's lawyers largely relied upon in their arguments. So I left feeling like they probably, you know, Kelly and her entourage probably felt like they had a pretty good day there. So I, I agree with you, Kate, uh, but just let me play devil's advocate for a second. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the court is of the view that DOJ and DOJ officials, you know, don't have time and shouldn't be uh, wasting their resources, you know, going after these state officials because, right, they need to enforce the Voting Rights Act? Great point. Just possible, <laughs> possible alternative. Of course, the census case was raised in the briefs. Yeah. I wanted it to come up. I think they're, they were scared of what they would invite on this podcast if they said one word about it. But that's surely lurking in the background. And at first, this whole idea that you know all politics is local. I mean, actually local. State law. Not Do not make a federal case out of this. But also, if we had to call federal officials or state officials on the carpet every time they lied about what they did, maybe we would be doing this all the time, which is a kind of cynical way to think about it, but maybe completely appropriate for the moment. Well, and the fed look, the federal government says 
the lie standing alone is clearly not enough to support liability in a case like this, right? So you have both the realignment of lanes, but then also the cover story, which um, Kelly and Baroni and a third defendant who pleaded out early in the case offered, right? Which was that there was, a, this was all about a traffic study, right? There was no traffic study. But they had this cover story they told both internally and um, publicly, including in some state legislative testimony, that that was the reason for the realignment. And so what the federal government has said was that that was essentially a taking of public property, both the lanes themselves kind of, but the theory is even more that it was the labor of the, the uh, Port Authority officials who were pressed into service in both executing and then concealing this conspiracy um, that was the unauthorized taking of, the, of these public goods. And so the lie itself is not something that's, that the federal government has ever suggested should be criminal, right, under the statutes at issue here, um, or under any federal statutes, right, lies, um, that's not true, I guess, un under some circumstances, but here very much it is the property plus the lies that so it's like the supports use liability. Of, is the use of public resources backed by a lie the same thing as the taking of property. And there was one thing that Eric Fagan argued, argued for the government, an analogy that he gave that I actually thought was pretty useful in trying to make the point. So he said, if there's a snowplow sitting there and I take the keys to the snowplow and I drive off in the snowplow, everyone would say I've obtained the snowplow. But if I instead, he said, if I put on one of those masks from Mission Impossible and I impersonate the boss of the snowplow driver, and I tell the snowplow driver to drive around in the snowplow and do the exact same thing, I have also obtained property by, by fraud. So, you know, where's the principal distinction there? I thought, you know, it's a reasonable argument. I still think obtain property seems so different from use of public resources. And when I was reading the transcript, I kept thinking to myself, where else have I heard this? The idea, the use of government resources for personal gain to harm a political opponent. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? No, definitely has not come up at all nope. in the last few years. Well, I mean, again, all of this, I mean, they could have been prosecuted under the honest services fraud statute if that had not been narrowed in Skilling and McDonald. And so this is, again, I think if it turns out as you think it will, and I think it's very likely it is going to turn out that the defendants will prevail here. Um, it's part of a broader trend toward limiting prosecutorial discretion and authority in these corruption cases. Well, and I mean, part, I think in, in the McDonald argument, so again, that's the governor um, who had been prosecuted um, and got this you know, unanimous reversal of his conviction. Um, I think the federal government was sort of gave too much, too many kind of trust us answers in the oral argument. And I think that was something that made the court very nervous, right? The idea of these broad federal statutes in the hands of roving prosecutors with, you know, very heavy penalties attached. Um, it, it, it was something that I think the government, the, the court was nervous about kind of handing to the government. And I actually think- like, well, Fagan, we'll only do this if it gets really bad, yeah, don't worry. Exactly. And that was essentially, that was, those were the assurances that the government very unsuccessfully offered to the court in the McDonald oral argument. I actually thought Fagan, so we should say that he is newly the deputy in the Solicitor General's office after the retirement from the SG's office of longtime criminal deputy Michael Dreben, this kind of criminal law legend. So he's now in private practice. And Fagan has taken over this, I think, docket. Um, and I think he did try to offer a lot of non just trust us, but here's a bunch of narrowing um, answers to the justices. And I, I don't think that this is a unanimous loss for the government by any stretch, um, the way McDonald was. But and I and I don't think it's I, I would not say that it's a foregone conclusion that the defendants here win, but I think it would be consistent with this trend. And I certainly didn't see the justices taking the position that this case is radically different from those other cases. I, I think the silver lining here is that obviously the court and the government are becoming more skeptical of prosecutorial discretion generally, right? Yeah, definitely, especially in like drug cases. One thing that I, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, mean, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, one thing that I thought uh, was great about this argument is that the defendants had a divided argument and they divided it up really effectively. And I don't think the court often allows um, multiple parties to be arguing in these cases like this, um, but the parties really did an admirable job. So Kelly's lawyer was really focused on the idea that regulatory authority isn't property for purposes of the fraud statutes. And then Baroni's lawyer was focused on the idea that a public official doesn't commit fraud so long as the decision is generally within the official's authority 
authority and claimed that the government disputed that below but concedes it now. Um, and so I thought they did a really nice job of dividing up the argument and pressing these two grounds, you know, either of which would be sufficient for them to win. Um, and I thought was a really nice way to divide up the argument. I'll say, just to kind of echo what you were saying about this being fairly rare, both in the Supreme Court, it's also true of the courts of appeals. And one of the biggest reasons is that when judges are asking questions during oral argument, they don't like to be told, I'm not talking about that issue, my, you know, my colleague will, because a lot of times, you know, if you try to split things up between standing and merits, there's a lot of overlap. And judges want to be able to ask questions when they have questions and float seamlessly between the two. Um, and I do think that impacts, you know, if, if there were more divided arguments, there could be more opportunities for um, diverse attorneys to be arguing before courts of appeals and the Supreme Court. And, and I do wish that courts would embrace that um, a, a little bit more. Uh, the, the last thing I'll mention about that case is one of the reasons that I agree with you, Kate, that the defendants are likely to win is because um, Justice Alito was pretty critical of the government's position, and he asked some questions like, you know, I was looking through the record, and I had a hard time finding this element, and I'm thinking, in a, in a criminal case, if Alito is digging through the record and you've lost him, you're probably not going to prevail. He was also very annoyed that the New Jersey deputy to the Port Authority was the deputy to the New York person who ran Port Authority. So, I mean, he was like big upping. For oh, yeah. <laughs> he might be the situation in all of this. <laughs> in all of this. Uh, so I will not comment on that. Um, but along the lines of, you know, good signs for the defendant, in addition to Justice Alito, maybe expresses some skepticism on the government's argument. Justice Breyer was oddly expressing concerns about the reach of criminal statutes and the idea that the penalties for this were so long. He's like, oh my goodness, it's 30 years. That's too long. So, yeah. So uh, there's one other argument we want to kind of half cover. We want to cover one specific issue, and it has to do with kind of dynamics between counsel. Um, so there was this case, um, Romag Fasteners versus Fossil, I think it's, it's one of our fashion cases from last week. It was really sexy and amazing. Billy Porter wrote in, said he loved it. <laughs> so the case is about whether trademark plaintiffs have to prove willfulness to receive an award of um, profits. So versus statutory damages or other things like that to get specifically profits, whether you have to prove willful infringement. And in that case, there was there were really interesting dynamics between counsel. So the two uh, counsel that were uh, arguing, um, Lisa Blatt was arguing for the petitioners. She's the um, most experienced female Supreme Court advocate in the country. She's also one of the most experienced Supreme Court advocates in the country generally. On the other side was Neil Kachel, um, also a, a very experienced Supreme Court advocate, has argued dozens of cases. And let me just kind of set this up by explaining the kind of tradition of appellate advocacy in the Supreme Court and otherwise uh, as well. So there's this tradition of extreme kind of um, uh, overemphasized collegiality. So instead of referring to, you know, what this person said, you'd say, my friend, my sister, my brother, um, you'd also... We're going to start doing that here. <laughs> as my sister, uh, Leah. Sister Leah. <laughs> yes. Um, and when you refer to a party's arguments, you're, you're referring to the party usually, not the specific attorney, under the understanding that attorneys are just represent... They're kind of conduits through which parties make their arguments. Um, so you'd say, you know, as the other side said, or as my friend on the other side said, uh, that's how you refer to someone else during the argument. Um, you understand everything's a team effort. It's not just one attorney that's making these arguments. It's everyone doing it together. That is not what happened here. It started out as a kind of team effort, and then it slowly broke down. So what happened is that um, the, the counsel for the respondents, Neil Kachal, um, uh, and I was reading this transcript, and this jumped out um, uh, from the page for me. He um, referred to Romag's arguments, um, the briefing, and counsel um, more than um, about 35 times or more. Um, just with the, the kind of impersonal pronoun her. You know, she did this. She said this. Um, it was, you know, her theory. If you, if you adopt her arguments, um, and there wasn't any reference to Ms. Blatt, only at the very beginning there were a couple of references to my friend, but then the rest of his half an hour argument was this very jarring, impersonal um, uh, use of, of, of her and she. And um, I was told by a couple people who were in the courtroom at the same time that not only was he doing that, he was also pointing at her many times when, when he said it. Um, and some of them were particularly, they seemed to me kind of jarring or egregious, and I'll, I'll uh, list two examples. One, um, Justice Ginsburg was asking him a question about the lack of uniformity of the case law that he was citing. 
Um, and he, his response was, Justice Ginsburg, ask her to cite a case in which callous disregard was enough before 1946 to find uh, to, to find uh, a profits award. Which is seemed to me kind of both presumptuous and also kind of rude. And then the second example is he was talking about the claims that were asserted, and he said, you know, she sought $6 million, every dollar in, in profits. Uh, and, you know, Lisa was not trial counsel. Like, she was not seeking anything. Um, and, and I found it incredibly jarring. It felt personal. It felt accusatory. Uh, and and uh, Leah, do you want to explain what happened when she, when she stepped up for her rebuttal? In addition to the examples Jamie gives, um, he repeatedly says things like, so there are five separate tre- treatises, which, by the way, she misstates because she cites the wrong provision. So every single one of the cases she points to, I think, actually boomerangs. It doesn't say what she says it does. And there's just like an element of, I, I don't even know what to describe it as, that is um, extremely off-putting. And it, it struck me as uncomfortable. I Maybe it's mansplaining. Maybe it's something else. I don't know. Um, but I read Lisa's rebuttal as it annoyed her only because she stood up and her very first words, and this is someone who is never at a loss for words, was... so. I I don't know what to say. I didn't go to a fancy law school, but I'm very confident in my representation of the case law. And it was just a really odd and uncomfortable transcript to read. And I'm worried that listening to it is going to be uncomfortable as well. And I'll also say that while I'm actually feeling um, like a little anxiety even talking about this, like I I feel very stressed about talking about this even. Um, And the one thing I want to add that she said right when she stood up, even before she said, I don't know what to say, she said, you may want to cut me off, um, which is kind of an indication of like, I have to be, well, not not that I have to be careful, but you know, this is, we're about to throw hands. Yeah. Um, and, and Lisa, to be clear, Lisa is one of the most unconventional Supreme Court advocates in the business. Um, she refers to the court as you guys. <laughs> like, you know, you guys said in this case this and that. Um, I, I was wondering, like, maybe this, I've seen Neil argue before, but maybe this is just his style and I hadn't noticed it before. And so I looked through the last five years of his argument transcripts um, last night at Professor Walensky's house. And Happy birthday, <laughs> Professor Walensky. <laughs> yes. It was an year. Um, and, and, and now, to be fair, I didn't do an empirical study, but I, I skimmed through all of them. Uh, and although, uh, of course, occasionally he used pronouns, that's common, right? You say, as my friend said, you know, he, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in all of those arguments, he used my friends, the other side, respondents, they, the government, the state, um, as, a, as a kind of matter of course. There was only one case I found where he seemed to use he a little more commonly. It was Dietz versus Bolden. Um, but in that case, it was still only, I think, seven or eight times. And, it, and also the petitioner in that case was an actual human man. So, you know, he says he, I don't know if he was referring to the other counsel, Canem Shamigan, or if he was referring to the litigant. Um, and he also interspersed the he's with, you know, as Mr. Shamigan said. Um, so it was it was very different. Um, and, and as you said, very jarring and off-putting. So not surprisingly, RBG had the last word here because when Lisa Black got up for her rebuttal, she disclaimed that she had not gone to a fancy law school. And I think Justice Ginsburg intervened to break the tension a little by noting... Ms. Black, oh, Texas is a fine law school. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I also find this stressful to talk about, Jamie. I don't totally know why. I think it's like one of those instances where it's just, it's uncomfortable and you're not sure what's going on. It's hard to prove. Like, maybe this reveals a flaw in the government's entire theory of the Title VII case where you're supposed to identify a person exactly like Lisa Blatt and ask whether they would be treated the exact same way that she was. Um, but it's just like an instinct that, like, something about this is, is not quite right. Right. And I will say I tried to look for someone that's similarly situated to Lisa Blatt, but as we'll get to in a second, um, that's really difficult to do since none of the other arguments that I came across uh, was Neil arguing against a woman which is pretty typical of Supreme Court cases. With that in mind, let's shift to court culture. Um, A couple of great opportunities for students. The American Constitution Society, ACS, one of our sponsors here today, will be hosting their annual law student conference this March, March 27th through 28th, in beautiful, balmy Boston, Massachusetts, (laughs) Harvard Law School. Woo! Um, So if you are a law student and interested in that opportunity, it would be a great time to go up there, hang out with all of the other progressive law students interested in these issues. There will be some great law professors who are going to be on the docket for that student conference and lots of great topics. 
in a year like 2020, there is going to be no shortage of interesting things to talk about and discuss. So that will be a must-see event. So please take a look at that. It'll be posted on the ACS website and also on the Harvard Student Chapters website. Another point we wanted to bring up, uh, this is, you know, hiring watch. We talk about clerkships sometimes. Um, Judge Katzman, who is a, a Second Circuit judge, is hiring for the 2024 term. So a law student could get married, uh, give birth, uh, and have a baby, and the baby would be pre in pre-K before the clerkship even starts. <laughs> this is problematic, right? Like, this is not good. Also, it's one way for judges to evade the constraints of various hiring plans is just to hire people who are so far who are not going to be subject to it. So that's, I think, one problem, too. I think for for y'all, I mean, talking to the law students in the room, it's a little hard to plan your life four years from now, right? Like, this wasn't really a thing when we were graduating from law school. Um, a year or two, maybe, but that was, but certainly nobody was hiring four years out. Um, yeah. One problem of sort of the long leash for this is that I think it makes just judges even less risk averse than they ordinarily would be. And so it sort of amps up the interest in people who have already clerked before, who have lined up some kind of other clerkship. And I think if you think about just the pool of clerkships being a scarce resource, and it is, and you are sort of allow having people double dipping it, again, and triple and dipping. triple dipping, <laughs> it really does shrink the pool of available clerkships that people who have no clerkship might be able to get. And so if you are truly concerned about the pipeline to clerkships and the diversity of that pipeline, that is a real factor. So another issue slash topic we wanted to flag, uh, which kind of combines the first two, is the People's Parity Project National Convention in Washington, D.C., February 7th to 9th. Uh, for those of you who might not know, People's Parity Project is an organization that was started recently by a group of law students um, and organizers who are working in a variety of different ways to try to make the law and legal profession uh, a little bit more equitable than it might be now. And their conference, they are offering an all expenses paid um, trip to their conference for those who are selected. And if you are interested in applying, you can go to their website, uh, which is peoplesparity.org backslash convening. Uh, Melissa, you look like you want to apply. <laughs> Had me at all expenses. <laughs> um, so uh, one kind of anecdote-ish about People's Parity Project related to the last issue we were discussing, the clerkship hiring is People's Parity Project um, is one of the groups um, and some of the students involved in that organization are among the students who expressed some discomfort um, with a recent posting by the Harvard Law School Office of Career Services on their clerkship blog. Um, and I should note, I have some views and have expressed them as well, um, in which the clerkship office posted some opportunities with judges who had reportedly not received any applications from Harvard Law students. Um, and those judges included Judge Pitlick on the District Court of Missouri, as well as Judge Van Dyke on the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. Uh, those two particular judges um, were rated as unqualified by the ABA and also had a rather lengthy history of doing um, anti-contraceptive and anti-LGBT uh, litigation. And the clerkship office said, it feels like, quote, uh, or it is, a wasted opportunity to not apply to these judges. And some people within the People's Parity Project, as well as me, uh, took issue with the idea that they were broadcasting to the entire student body that it was a wasted opportunity for them not to apply to these particular judges. Um, and as some students, you know, pointed out, there is like a real concern with choosing to go and clerk for some judges who have this very extensive background um, in, among other things, anti-LGBT uh, litigation, particularly when there are concerns that those judges are going to be doing that same thing as judges. And this kind of came to fruition in a recent opinion by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit um, uh, by Judge Stuart Kyle Duncan, a recent Trump appointee to the Fifth Circuit, in which he addressed a motion by a transgender prisoner to be referred to by female pronouns and said that the court wouldn't do that because it would give the appearance of impartiality. It was honestly just like a really long, fairly bigoted culture war harangue. And I think there's like a real discomfort with you know, just broadly applying to all of the judges when some of the judges have really serious indications in their prior work that, um, you know, they are going to do this as judges. So. 
And I think that Fifth Circuit order was panned in, in sort of a satisfying way across the ideological spectrum. I saw a lot of conservatives saying this is gratuitous and mean-spirited and just a wildly unnecessary and unjudicial writing. Um, and um, and I, I, I thought that actually there was a surprising degree of, um, you know, and an encouraging degree of consensus around that. I think a lot of people also made the point that when the Supreme Court heard its Title VII cases last fall, none of the justices, however they're going to ultimately rule in the case, seemed to struggle with using correct gender pronouns for the parties before them. And um, it's almost it's disrespectful not only of the parties before the Fifth Circuit, but actually of the Supreme Court not to at least take the cue that you use the pronouns that the parties before you uh, use for themselves. So so that I thought was a very nice point. Actually. I mean, Judge Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, you know, wrote an opinion in which he called it pure meanness, you know, not to refer to a transgender a litigant um, by the correct pronouns. And, you know, the Court of Appeals just made this argument about, you know, there's no stopping point because people will want to be called all sorts of things. You know, if you identify a transgender individual according to the correct pronoun. Um, they also cited an article, a recent Harvard Law Review article by Jessica Clark, um, uh, as she noted on Twitter, you know, a really good indication that they didn't actually read her article is that they misspelled her name. Um, you know, so. All right. In related news, I just want to note that this week, um, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced their nominees for the Oscars. Um, what the actual F? Um, <laughs> Jennifer Lopez was completely snubbed for her fantastic performance. I was so glad you all discussed that in the previous episode so that we could then have a tirade about that on this episode because it, 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 it's absurd, right? There were so many snubs. I mean, yes. Lapita, who had to play two different people in a, a movie that was actually terrifying to watch and I imagine to act in. Aquafina was snubbed. No women directors. Apparently, Little Women directed itself. Um, <laughs> It was just like, it was just trash all the way around. Like, and I will say, I have an Oscar party every year. I thought you were going to very an serious about it. <laughs> and an Oscar. I have an Oscar party every year. I'm super serious about it. I've been doing it since law school. The year that Gladiator was nominated, Carlos Singer, who is now a lawyer in LA, made an award winning Caesar salad. And I was like, very strong, wow. very strong contribution. I'm um, all getting invited to this year? I'm not having it because what? this, I'm not, okay, I'm not right. going to You're watch. protesting. This okay. Is right. This right. is crap. I'm not watching it. We should I'm do some counter programming yeah we should totally do it's i don't like, know a live show that like when like to daniels folded laundry instead <laughs> of the state of the union we should do that um so i thought she was amazing as ramona first i mean I, again she is 50 years old she is an older worker for purposes of <laughs> the age discrimination and employment act and she like Oh, I mean, right? She I know. so hard and she does so hard. She was, she was great. She was amazing. She was amazing in that movie. She is amazing in life. Just, yeah. I mean, so. Go J-Lo. Yeah. And like uh, Academy, I do not thank you. <laughs> uh, I feel like should we end on? I, well, we, I almost feel like we should end on the J Lo note, but we did want we did want to flag that it is not just the Academy, but the Supreme Court. How's that segue? That almost works. That is, snub, <laughs> that, is that is snubbing women in. Um, it's oral. Or, I mean, look, it's a complicated it's not, not phenomenon. The court itself the court necessarily not rejecting requests <laughs> from female advocates to argue cases, but the numbers are pretty bad, and they and they almost especially dispiritingly, appear to be getting worse in the last couple of years. So um, in the January term, um, we've got 13% of the first-time advocates um, are women. Last year, it, the last three terms, it was 21%. So of all the first-time advocates, one in five in the last few years have been women. Again, this term so far, 13%. Um, two of the 20 advocates arguing in January have been women, two. Um, so, and I do think that Jamie's point about additional divided argument, grant more cases. When you have a chance to invite an amicus, invite a female advocate to serve as amicus. There are lots of tiny little interventions uh, that the court could make that could make a big difference. When the denominator is this small, you add a couple of additional women advocates, the numerator, and it could really make a difference. Um, and I think that's when, a real problem. One of the, the you, you mentioned first-time advocates, and I think that's a really critical figure to look at because what I've heard a lot of is that um, yes, the numbers have been bad historically, but now there are more female uh, Supreme Court clerks, and it's going to get better. You know, we're on the upswing. Um, but when you look at the fact that that even first-time advocates, all first-time advocates, um, over the last three years, it is virtually identical to all advocates. So it, it doesn't mean that it, it means that you know new women advocates are not getting the opportunities, just like uh, people who are 20 years their senior are. 
It's really frustrating. It's the same dynamic with clerkships. I mean, this is the kind of opportunity that one gets because one has done it before. And so if you don't even get your foot in the door, you are further limiting the likelihood that you will be asked, right? And so yeah. you can't even change or move the needle on this unless you make these initial interventions that give women a first-time shot to yeah. do this. So should we end on pizza? Sure. We do not have enough time to cover the utter fuster cluck that is the recently introduced Supreme Court pizza. <laughs> Let's just let it be said that Justice Kavanaugh is in charge of the cafeteria as the junior justice, and he brought, he brought pizza to the court, and there's air quotes around it because it doesn't look like pizza. And all I have to say is that when Justice Kagan was the junior justice, she brought a frozen yogurt machine. Strong Strong. Strong showing. Good showing. Strong showing. Women get stuff done. <laughs> I mean, pizza, like, pizza would not have been a bad intervention. If it was actually pizza. What was it? It was like a sad piece of soggy bread with some tomato sauce in it, according to the reviews. I haven't actually tried it yet. Okay. Uh, can I just say one thing? We have cert grants. Oh, no. Ready? Breaking news of the moment. Are we all okay. going to have ulcers? What? All right. Okay. So a couple of personal jurisdiction cases, um, Ford Motor Company versus, uh, anyway, sorry, that's not what you care about. <laughs> I, I care. I, ca I care too because um, I filed an amicus brief in that case. So in, in support of a cert grant. Okay. So second, Little Sisters of the Poor versus oh, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. And Trump versus Pennsylvania. After that, okay, Chiafalo versus Washington. Contraceptive. These are contraceptive, contraceptive cases. cases. Yeah. Okay. Chiafalo versus Washington. I don't know what that one. Um, Colorado Department of State versus Baca. Okay. Oh, that might be the uh, faithless elector. That's a faithless elector case. Wow. Okay. So it's going to stay a slow, boring term. to know, yeah. <laughs> All right. You going around? Um, okay. <laughs> I feel like we've done a lot here. Maybe we've done enough. So we're going to thank all of the great students we've met here at the University of Michigan, one of the best law schools in the country. <laughs> Melody, edit that out. <laughs> and in particular, we want to um, thank ACS here uh, at Michigan for bringing us out and for bringing um, Melody out. Um, uh, it's really been a really incredible experience, and I've really loved interacting with all of these amazing students here. So thank you for having us. We, as always, are incredibly grateful to our stellar producer, Melody Rowell, who came to Michigan to do this for us. And of course, Eddie Cooper, who does our haunting theme music. And everyone else who helps us to get this show produced and out into your ear holes. We are really excited, as always, to be interacting with you. So please follow us on Twitter individually or collectively at, at strictscrutiny underscore. And you can always, always support the pod and look great while doing it by checking out our Strict Scrutiny merchandise and our Glow campaign on our website, www.strictscrutinypodcast.com. And just in case Lev Parnas doesn't follow me or the show on Twitter, we did want to be sure to invite him on the podcast now that he's doing media rounds just to see if he has any views about the federal bribery statutes and <laughs> other things too. I think this is a great platform for Lev. <laughs> I, I agree, right? Like if he wants to share with us other notes and like lists of other crimes he wrote down to do, that's cool too. Um, we could also do a live taping at the Trump International Hotel, which would be amazing. Also fine. Lev, slide into our DMs yep. too. Yes. <laughs> All right. DMs are open. Thanks so much. Until later. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.